Today is Friday, November 19th. The title for our devotional is Story of Reconstruction, Legalism, or Grace. This coming Sunday, Tammy Kettleson will be preaching on the topic of legalism for grace. Before we hear her preach and before we listen to her story later in the podcast today, I thought we would read a story from the life of Jesus that illustrates this concept well. Luke 7, 36-50 When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them off with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. For our story of reconstruction today, I sat down with Tammy Kettleson to hear a little bit of her story before she preaches on Sunday. Hey everyone, Uh, we're here with another story. Remember the next couple of weeks, what we're doing is just hearing some stories of reconstruction. And I'm here today with Tammy Kettleson and Tammy is going to be preaching on Sunday about the topic of legalism for grace. So we're really excited to have her and we have her on the podcast before she's going to be preaching so that we can just hear hear a bit of her story and that should add a lot of context to uh, what she's going to be preaching about on Sunday. So uh, Tammy, your, your, your topic is legalism for grace. Uh, so can you kind of just tease that out a little bit first? Yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, I, I think there's different ways you can define legalism. And for a lot of people who grew up in the church, I think have their own story with this. Um, legalism could be described as excessive adherence to a law or to formula. And grace could be described as God granting us favor and benefits that we don't deserve. And one of the things in studying this and kind of researching the topic, but also living this out, is that the opposite of grace is not law or legalism, because God's law actually was an extension of God's grace, and we can see that in the Old Testament. Um, But the opposite of grace is simply the absence of grace. 
Yeah, that's a good distinction. In a lot of religious circles, we tend to focus so much on on legalism, on law, and doing the right thing, following the rules. Grace is difficult for us to grasp. So have you noticed that in your ministry, and have you noticed that in your life? So I know we're going to share talk about your story in your life. So first of all, just have you noticed a difficulty in grasping the distinction between the two? So I grew up in church. So my grandpa was a pastor, so I kind of grew up on the pew, basically, when church was open, we were there. And when I think back to like some silly things now that I think most people in the church growing up in the church laugh at, you think about legalism as like girls weren't allowed to wear pants to church. So I always had to wear a dress or a skirt on Sunday mornings. I was not allowed to go to school dances because Christians don't dance. I mean, <laughs> obviously, that was a strong rule. My parents talk about how they weren't allowed to play card games. Like, you know, we talk about legalism, things that are not, you can't find scripture for it, um, but they're man-made rules that we choose to set up the standard that we need to live by that really is super unattainable. Mm-hmm. And when you break down legalism to its core, it's control, mm-hmm. right? It's trying to control a spouse your children, your congregation, Mm -hmm. an organization. It's setting these standards for people to try to live and, you know, abide by. Mm. So why don't you you talk about your story and how your story relates to this topic? For sure. So growing up in a Christian home, like I said, we were Mm -hmm. always at church. And when I look back on those days and those years, I am super grateful for Sunday school teachers that were also always there and pastors and leaders and for my parents, um, just for leadership that was around me and discipleship that was happening. But I also can look back and see a young girl who was just so confused, who didn't quite get it yet. I see sadness for what I thought was true, but what I didn't understand to be complete truth. There were stories about God and about Jesus, you know, coming to save us and to extend us grace. There were stories uh, about Peter being restored. I mean, I heard all of these stories in the Bible growing up, but it didn't fully sink into me because I think maybe at the time I felt like the attendance in the room was more important than the relationship sinking in and the words that are being taught actually being moved me, moving me to a discipleship process. So after I graduated from high school, I went on to a Christian university and there were people that were always talking about grace and they they seemed to have this incredible grasp on what grace really was. But oftentimes I felt like a junior high girl who kind of laughs at a joke that I don't understand just because Mm -hmm. everybody else is laughing. (laughs) You know, when people would talk about grace, I would kind of smile and nod as if to say like, yeah, I totally get it. But in my heart, like constantly feeling that desperation of wanting to truly know the grace of God. And so when I met my husband, Levi, he really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I've learned so much from him just by observing the way that he lives his life. But one of the first few things that I noticed about him right away was this ease that he had in forgiving people. It was, it was quick and it was almost effortlessly. And that's really annoying to me because you know, those like spiritual gifts tests that you can take, um, 
grace and mercy always seem to be the bottom two <laughs> for me. Uh, and so it's something that I have to truly think about and practice quite a bit, but it makes sense. It's like one of Levi's top two. And so I get it now. When Levi and I would have an issue or argument, a disagreement, he would apologize and he would ask me to forgive him. And I was so uncomfortable with that. And I'd be like, yeah, or I'd say, sure. And I just kind of want to run away and hide in a hole somewhere because it's not what I saw growing up. I saw, you know, we'd argue, we'd get into a fight, we'd kind of go our separate ways. We wouldn't really talk about it. Maybe a day, two days later, we would start talking again. And it was like, we're just supposed to pretend like everything is totally mm. fine, uh, which is not healthy, but that's what I saw. And that's what I knew from growing up. So when Levi would say, no, no, like you can't just say yes. I actually need to hear you say, I forgive you. Mm. You know, it was already so uncomfortable for me to say yes. Now he's like wanting me to add more words to it. At the time, I didn't understand it, but I was recognizing that just as I was longing to know grace from my Savior, Levi knew the importance of grace in our marriage and in relationships with others. And it was in that time that I recognized that I actually needed to know grace from more than just God, but from people around me. And so Matthew 6.15 says, But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. So I started to maybe pay a little bit more attention to how I responded to people um, when I felt wronged by them or hurt by them, that I needed to participate in the process of learning grace for myself. And so if you struggle with knowing God's grace or if you struggle with learning forgiveness, I would ask you, how well do you forgive others? How well do you receive grace and extend grace to others? So I'm sure you would say that you're not, I, I know you, you would say you haven't perfected no. the ability to like forgive and give grace. Like nobody has, but God, right. Can you kind of take us through the journey of discovery to not only identifying that, but how God has been working on your heart to learn to forgive and learn to give grace. Absolutely. So obviously I observed a lot of things from Levi, but that doesn't mean that I disciplined a practice mm -hmm. right away. Uh, so if you fast forward eight years from when we first got married, we had already had our three children. It was 2010. I found out I was pregnant for a third time. And honestly, I wasn't super excited about it. Uh, we hadn't planned on having any more kids. We actually planned on having two children. And if you heard me, I said, I already had three children. And so when I found out I was pregnant again, I was just having a hard time wrapping my head around it. And so um, on the 4th of July in 2010, I woke up not feeling super great and feeling like um, something was just a little bit off. And so I told Levi to go ahead with the girls to the parade. We had a lot of festivities with family and friends that day um, scheduled, and I didn't want them to miss out on that. I said, I'm just going to run by the urgent care real quick, and it'll be fine. I'll meet up with you later. Well, five hours later, I ended up in the emergency room, and we were losing that baby. And immediately... I obviously was sad and I was mourning, but it turned to anger pretty quickly because the reality is that wasn't our first miscarriage. So in October of 2003, um, our first pregnancy also ended in loss. And I remember in 2010, really just sitting in anger that why would God allow a pregnancy that we weren't planning for, we weren't preparing for, or even asking him for. 
and then also allow the loss to take place. From my legalistic mindset of growing up, past patterns begin to come in and thought processes begin to come in that I must have done something wrong. There was a blame on me. If I, if I wouldn't have been concerned about having a fourth child, if I wouldn't have you know, said I wasn't wanting to get pregnant again, you know, would I have been allowed to keep that child? You know, all these different things that play through, I think, a lot of men and women's minds when they go through miscarriage. But for me, it quickly turned to really being angry at God. And then the anger turned into shame. And then the shame turns into regret. And then it, it's kind of this cycle that keeps going, like sadness, anger, shame, regret. And it just kept recycling over and over again. And I was really in a season of being stuck. And I would say that in that moment is when I began my, I guess, deconstruction process. I think back then we called it crisis of faith, <laughs> right? you know, um, but now it's it's more common to say deconstruction. And so I think that is when that really hit me hard. And I started to need to know, is God who he says he is? Is he a loving father? Because I didn't feel like he was in that moment. Is he a good God? Because I didn't sense that in the moment. And so I had to start kind of processing through who he is and do I believe that's who he is? Mm -hmm. And is there scripture to back that up? Because I started to recognize there were a lot of things that I was doing or that I had learned growing up that I really couldn't find in scripture. And I needed to begin a process of knowing him in a new way. So how long was that process? It was probably four years. So today you're getting just a really small snapshot of the beginning process. And I'll probably share more of that. Yeah. On Sunday, um, what did that what did that process look like? So you mentioned reading scripture, a lot of like exploring scripture to find out what did God really promise? Who is God really? And what does scripture say? What are some of the misconceptions that I have based on the way I was raised, whether intentionally or unintentionally? Those messages that got communicated to you. Um, so obviously, a lot of Bible reading. What did that process look like for you? I mean, it definitely was a lot of prayer, a lot of solitude. Mm-hmm. I definitely felt I was kind of moving into a potential like stage of depression because of the sadness and the shame and really just the mourning. Um, And so I did find myself alone quite a bit, but it was actually the best thing for me in that season. I think that the scripture came later because I needed to, I think I needed to first sense a safety in his presence When I was younger in youth group, and I don't know, there's probably a lot of other people that can relate, but I remember like every Wednesday night almost, which was when we had youth group, going to the altar and like begging and pleading for forgiveness. Even if I like really didn't do anything (laughs) that week, but it was like so dramatic. And obviously this is like teenage girl hormones and there's a lot of other things that go into play with that. But I just remember it being such an emotional experience as if it wasn't available already that I had to somehow earn this grace that he apparently was so freely given, giving to us. Um, And so I'd find myself begging and pleading at the altar. I found myself kind of in that same spot as like a 29 year old woman um, begging and pleading for God to show up somehow, some way that, that if, if he would just come to me and if he could just heal this brokenness, then I, 
would be able to move forward with him if he could come and, and make this right almost. And so I remember a moment so clearly I was sitting at my kitchen table with two other people and I was just in a state of complete brokenness and I was praying and just saying, you guys, I need to figure out how to move forward. Cause I can't stay. This was probably four months of this process of just feeling so stuck and so alone and so hopeless and needing Jesus to reveal himself to me in such a clear way because I felt like I was failing him every day. And so they were praying for me and uh, I was crying and my eyes were closed and I saw a picture so clearly. And this is not something that happens to me regularly, but in that moment I needed, I needed something so in my face to show up. And so I saw this picture and it was a picture I'd seen before. It was Jesus. He was hanging on a cross. He was beaten. He was bloody using every single ounce of his strength just to take a breath. I'm watching this happen kind of in my own mind. And it's a picture that we've seen, you know, through different movies or pictures on on church walls and on crosses in people's houses. You know, it's things I've seen before, but there was something that was so different about this picture. And it was that there was this banner that was stretched from one of his hands to the other and written on this white banner was the word forgiven. And that didn't seem like super uncommon either, but it was like there was a spotlight on the nails that were holding Jesus to the cross because it was those nails that were also holding this banner to the cross. And I felt like God was just telling me in that moment that, you know, when Jesus hung there, he had already taken all of your sins. There's nothing you're, you can do to earn that. And I've heard that so many times, right? right? right. And I, and, but it never like fully sunk in. It's clear that the Bible says that Jesus hung on the cross for our sins. But in that moment, it sunk in so deep that over 2,000 years ago, long before I was ever born, before I was ever a thought in any human's mm-hmm. mind, that he fully took my sin from me. And what you can realize from that moment is that there was, so there's nothing I can do to earn it because it was already done before I was here. So there's nothing I can do to work for it. Um, There's nothing I can do to create this big moment in my life to receive the grace because it was already extended to me before I was a person, a human on this earth to earn it. And because it's given to me before I can earn it. It's not something I can work for. And Andy Stanley says in his book, The Grace of God, to earn something is to find an equivalent. So if we work for a set amount of hours or we work for a specific job in return, we're going to earn an income that's equal to the value of the work or the hours given. Well, with grace, there's no equivalent. So we cannot earn it. Grace doesn't dumb down sin to make it more palatable. Grace doesn't have to because grace acknowledges the full implication of sin and yet does not condemn us. So I think that sometimes it can be really hard for some of us who've grown up in the church to truly know what redemption is, Um, that we hear stories, we hear testimonies of how incredible God is, but it doesn't always become real to us because we're so in the culture, we're so in the the rules and the laws, and, and so we've tried so hard to maintain this lifestyle of good, that redemption isn't necessarily what we feel like we need. But I think in the church that the world um, can think that only the unholy or the non-Christians are the ones who are chained up and bound 
up in need of grace. But after years of ministry <laughs> and after years of counseling with my husband, I can see that it is we as Christ followers who um, have the same ability to handcuff ourselves to a standard of perfection or performance that causes us to stay bound up in shame because we're human. And even Jesus knew that we could not live up to this high standard. You know, Jesus died for us because he knew that grace was necessary for us. Amen. So take us back to the moment when you were praying around the, in the kitchen with your friends and you had that experience where you saw Christ on the cross with the banner across from hand to hand, nailed to the cross with forgiven written on it with your, your past and the history that you had described and struggling with the idea of forgiveness and God's grace um, and being able to forgive and give grace yourself. And then having that experience at that time in your life, what was your sense? What was your feeling? What, um, how did you sense God's goodness? Like in that time, can you, can you just describe that moment? I mean, there was a lot of tears because it felt so real. Mm -hmm. When I was seeing this picture in my head, it felt like he was right there. I left from that. I went and I drew the picture of what I saw, which is not fantastic because I'm not an artist, <laughs> but I went and I drew it and I still have that. And I actually have a tattoo yeah. of this vision yeah. in a very simplistic form um, on my body, which years ago, I never, I would have been going to hell if I had a tattoo. Exactly. If you're growing up in a legalist <laughs> right. culture, like tattoos are no, no. <laughs> right. um, and so there was this moment of this, this feeling of wanting to capture this moment so that I can forever be reminded yeah. that I'm not here to perform for God, that he, he wants to do things with me and he doesn't want me to try to live in such a way that performs a perfection without heart. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times in church, we can feel like, I would prefer this standard of almost robotic behavior of perfection from the people around me at church on Sunday than to actually see the work of grace transforming people's lives. And I think that's where in the church we can really get it mixed up, that it's almost like we would rather live in such a way that grace is not necessary. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I just don't feel like... God intended us to move through life in such a way that we, we don't make mistakes, mm -hmm. that we don't live in a way that we don't need a savior. Right. And so um, I guess in that moment, I was wanting so desperately to figure out some way to bottle it up, which I couldn't, but I can still look back and see it and, mm -hmm. and remember the moment. But that's kind of how I... Yeah, yeah, what you said there is is worth the price of admission for sure about how we try to live in such a way, and thank you for saying it that way, that's so great. We live in such a way that grace isn't necessary. Um, I was listening to, listening to a podcast the other day, I don't remember who said it, so I'm sorry, but they said this is why we struggle so much to pray. Like even prayer in and of itself is an, is an acknowledgement that we are insufficient on our own and we need somebody else, and like we need God, we need his help. Um, that's why, in part, we struggle so much to pray. There are lots of other reasons for that. But I think that's also why we struggle so much to even just accept the concept of grace because it is a, it, on its face, the very definition of it is something that we cannot do in and of ourselves, something that we need to be given. Yeah, and I think that 
it, it can be for most people harder to receive grace than it is to extend grace. Absolutely. This quote I have from Jess Conley from her new book, she said, when did the church, when did we as the church stop believing that Christ's love and his grace, grace compels us to change? Mm-hmm. When did we stop trusting the Holy Spirit to communicate appropriate boundaries through our freedom in Christ? Have we traded the message for freed, of freedom for even more bondage because we're scared to let people navigate the complex water of liberty in their own flesh. And I feel like this is so powerful because I do feel like the church uh, environment that I grew up in, I mean, I can look back and, and, and love a lot of things, but there was this kind of unspoken expectation that you have to do certain things, live up to this standard. And it wasn't, and they're not, scripture things, mm-hmm. you know, they're, I mean, I don't, I don't know how deep I want to go into all of those things, but that there's just this expectation that we put on the people around us on Sunday mornings and even the people that don't come to church, mm-hmm. we put an expectation on them yeah. of good behavior defined by us, yeah. not necessarily by scripture. And we stopped trusting the Holy Spirit to do his job mm-hmm. in setting boundaries for people in people's convictions are all different based on their personality, based on their past and their history, you know, mm-hmm. the things that they've grown up in and lived with. We just have different things that we need to shy away from yeah, and absolutely. other things that it's, it's okay for yep. us. And it's not in scripture, but right. we've defined this behavior that we, we just stop trusting the Holy Spirit and, I think we try, yeah, we try to take the take the role of the Holy Spirit in our own hands by making all of these rules that for many individuals, that may be an important boundary for you to put in place. That may be a rule that you have for your own life, a rule that is important for you to not fall into sin. You're honoring God with that, and that's a great rule for you. But if it's not found in Scripture, we get into so much trouble when we start imposing that rule onto other people and starts making others follow that same rule instead of allowing them to listen to the Holy Spirit in their own private prayer life, through scripture, all of that, and listening to God and allowing him to convict our hearts. And I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, I, I see why folks do this because we're, we're watching so many, uh, so many people who we love and we care about, where we have a strong desire for them to live in the way of Christ as well and to experience the fullness of life that Christ gives. And if they aren't listening to the Holy Spirit, we try to like fill the role of the Holy Spirit by giving them all of these rules that work for us. And sometimes they can be helpful, sometimes not, but instead of just allowing God to speak with them, and it's so important for Christians to just get alone with God. And I love how you described even the beginning of your process of deconstruction was just getting alone with God and allowing him to, to speak to your heart. Yeah. I mean, as a parent of teenagers, I think that, um, it's so easy to want to (laughs) share our way of doing things. Um, but I strongly encourage, you know, parents of teenagers, parents of just kids in general to parent, not based on behavior modification, but parent towards holiness, parent towards relationship, um, parent towards obviously scripture, But I think when we get into the space where we are just trying to modify the behavior of the little humans that are in our home, that you're going to grow up kind of in a way that I did, where you're going to leave home and you're going to be like, wait, now what do I do? 
I don't have anyone telling me exactly how to do things or setting the standard for me for this season of my life that you feel so lost. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the more we allow the Holy Spirit to extend grace Mm -hmm. and to allow people to walk and to stumble, um, because that's what grace is there for. It's to help pick us up and get us back on the right path towards sanctification and holiness that we will be the best brother and sister of Christ that we can be um, because we are choosing to step aside and not force our convictions, our opinions on other people. So a question that's been kind of sitting in the back of my mind as you've been talking is how have you in your parenting attempted to instill this concept of grace and this value of grace to not emphasize the legalistic side and following the rules like you were just talking about? but to give them a sense of grace, communion with God as well, and and not make religion and the Christian faith just about following the rules and being legalistic. I mean, it can be tricky, especially as pastor's kids, yeah. when you've got a lot of eyes watching you and a lot of people in the church have expectations for my kids that we don't even have as their yeah. parents. <laughs> and certainly I don't feel like God has for them, but a practical thing we did when our kids were younger, uh, when they would... Uh, mess up, you know, fight with their sister or whatever. We had what we called a consequence jar and we had different things written down in there. I mean, silly things like alphabetize all of the DVDs, which <laughs> is when we had DVDs in the car and you know, just different yeah. things like that. We um, color code the books on your bookshelf. I mean, things that uh-huh. weren't like <laughs> awful, but just time consuming that gave them time to actually think about what they did. Mm-hmm. But we also had in there some blank ones. And whenever they would draw one of those, then we would sit down and talk about grace. Mm-hmm. This time we're going to, we're going to let it go. And we kind of talked through, um, just whatever they did and mm-hmm. how this isn't how we behave kind of a thing. That was one practical way we That's did good. that for kids. Well, as they grow up, then yeah. they're just wiser and that's not as cute anymore. <laughs> um, but now we have, so all of our kids are teenagers. They're 13, 15 and 17. <laughs> And so um, now it's just a lot of conversation and it, it is demonstrating grace to them and to Levi and I to each other and showing them what grace walked out looks like. And when they have friend issues, my first go-to is always, well, I think it's time to extend some grace and, and you know, they'll roll their eyes and they get frustrated But the reality is the more I can teach them that grace is so necessary for us to live with humans, (laughs) um, the more I think that they will receive grace from other people and from God. Um, I think one of the things that we, we just limit the expectations of their behavior right now in this season, we're resourcing them. We feel like you hit a season where you become their coach. And I think that's the season we're in. Our kids are on the field or they're on the court and they're kind of playing this game called life. And Levi and I don't get to be with them and we don't get to walk with them. And and they're way less dependent on us now than they were before. And so from the sidelines, we can kind of yell some things as a coach, but they're out there and they're going to decide actually if they listen to us or not. And so a lot of things that we're doing now in life is resourcing them with books, podcasts, music, just different things that help them grow as a believer in Christ and bring their faith towards ownership and not because mom and dad are pastors or we grew up in the church, but that there's a different sense of 
this relationship belongs to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we've just shifted our parenting as they've gotten older and we realize that I don't want them to come to me when they have hard times. I want them to go to God. Mm -hmm. And so when they do come to me, my first response mostly is back to God. Let's pray about this. Let's go to scripture kind of a thing. That's so good. I think that's a good place to leave it. All right. Thanks, Tammy. You're welcome.